Good morning. A beautiful day. Thankful for the sunshine. Thankful for a church family picnic today and the chance for us to, to gather and maybe visit a little bit. It's been a long time coming, uh, but we're looking forward to that. So welcome. Welcome back to a little taste of normal, a little taste of normal. And we pray that there will be much, much more of that in our future. So for about 20 some odd weeks in our sermon time together, we've been asking the question, what does the church look like? What is the church? What is the church supposed to be? And you know, we've been answering that question according to Scripture. Not according to our personal histories, our personal preferences, not according to anything but what the scriptures say. And we've looked to Genesis, we've looked to Exodus, we've looked to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and throughout the Old Testament. And then we looked at the Gospels themselves and what Jesus said about establishing a kingdom, a kingdom coming near calling a people to himself. And now most recently, we're in the book of Acts. And we're asking the same question. What is this thing called the church? Who are the people that make up the church? And what kind of people are they supposed to be in the earth? Last week, we began Acts. And we'll continue this morning. And just as a brief summary or reminder, this is Jesus' continued ministry on earth, but now ascended into heaven. And we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 2 how that is made possible. That Jesus can reign from heaven and minister on earth through his people, through his church. That he empowers them and enables them to have success as he defines it, and he does it by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So give your attention to Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, probably a familiar passage to you. Let's hear it and let's hear it with new ears. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem... God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, 
visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Let's pray that God would bless our understanding of his word. Lord, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you help us to hear with new ears, to see with new eyes, even to have a new heart to believe what you have done and what you are doing through your church? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' ministry on earth, from heaven, through his church. The promised gift has finally come. Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1, which we considered last week, just prior to his ascension, he told his disciples, stay in Jerusalem, stay here, don't move, don't leave, until the promised Holy Spirit comes. And when the gift comes, he will give you power to be my witnesses in all the earth, beyond Jerusalem. And so here we see Jesus declaring that this work of ministry of the kingdom, it's been focused on Jerusalem in the short term, but he has a vision for the whole four corners of the earth. And that's what we begin to see now. Now, you're familiar with missionaries, and this church supports a number of them. You know that the work of a missionary is challenging in a number of ways not the least of which is a language barrier, cultural barriers, and of course, belief barriers, entering a culture that believes completely different things about the deity. I have a friend, a former student, who's a missionary in France, and she's been over there for more than a year studying the language, learning the language, studying the people, learning the culture, so that she might have a ministry to their belief. And so all of that to say, you know from your own experience, there's a lot of hurdles to cross to have an effective ministry to a people of another language. A lot of language study, a lot of hours spent. But not here, not on this occasion. For just a glimpse, for just a moment, the Lord shows a little taste of heaven on earth, maybe you could say. Suddenly those language barriers, just for an instant, are removed. The cultural barriers, removed. And for just an instant, for just a moment, we see a little heaven on earth when the kingdom has come that Jesus declared. When the power of the gospel has come, everything falls prostrate to it. And King Jesus is known, and he is worshipped, and there are no language barriers whatsoever. That's what we have happening here. Jesus is announcing through his apostles that everything he said was true. The kingdom has come, and the curse of sin is being undone. The kingdom has come. You remember in Mark chapter 1, Jesus began his public ministry saying... 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. And now here in Acts chapter 2, we see the fruit of that ministry, that it's real. Everything he said is real. The kingdom has come and everything is transforming and changing. Now, you have to understand the curse, we'll call it, of Genesis 11 to really grasp the beauty and wonder of a moment of heaven on earth in Acts chapter 2. Let me remind you what Genesis 11 verses 1 through 9 say. I don't know that I have those words written for you, but you can hear them here. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, the Lord says, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building that city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All right, you, you heard the story. You heard the words themselves. Man had come together and had one common language. And because of the sin in Genesis 3, they now want to make their name great. They now want to ascend to heaven in their own power with a tower. And the Lord comes down and says, no, 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 no. And he scatters them and confuses their language and sprinkles them throughout the earth. Confusion and chaos because of sin. And in the Bible, sin is always paralleled to confusion, chaos, disintegration. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 11. The Lord said, no. We will confuse your language. But in Acts chapter 2, we get a glimpse of how this king of all kings has come to reestablish order, and he's validating himself, he's proving who he is with the reestablishment of the oneness of language. Just for a moment. Just for a moment. And so all that confusion and chaos, when the kingdom comes in, everything is set right. Everything is put in order. Chaos is removed. And we get just a glimpse of heaven on earth for a moment. The kingdom has come. The curse is being undone. In this way, Pentecost is the unfolding of a promise to us in the Old Testament. You heard it in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. You read it in our reflection This is where the Lord says through his prophet Joel, 
I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Joel, the prophet Joel, the Lord speaking through him, prepares us for the day when the Lord will come and His Spirit will fill people. His Spirit will speak through people. And in Acts chapter 2, this little glimpse of heaven on earth, that is a moment. That's the moment, in a sense, that Joel is speaking of. In those days. And these would be the days of the king and his kingdom. It is an unfolding promise at Pentecost. It's also an authentic validation. What we have here is the kingdom being validated as real. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about these are real people living real life. This is real history being given to us. And in this way, it is validating the king and his kingdom. We have a miracle here. And the miracle was not in the hearing of the language. The miracle is that the speaker was speaking languages he did not know. That's the miracle. That for this glimpse of heaven on earth, for just a moment, there will be one language people will be able to understand. And so each person, as if it were one language, they heard spoken their native tongues. How do you explain that? You can't. And that's why the people were so amazed, why they were perplexed, why they were bewildered. Jesus, through his apostles, is validating the kingdom that these people might see and know there is something powerful at work here. It cannot be explained away. It is a miracle. Rob Rayburn, in his comments on this regarding miracles, that that's what this is, says this. Miracles are not ordinary to the Christian life and witness. They were very rare even in biblical times. They are less and less a feature of the apostles' ministry throughout the book of Acts. If miracles were commonplace, they wouldn't be miracles. What we see, however, is what we need to know and believe. That the Word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit is powerful to break the rock into pieces. We need to know that the Holy Spirit is with us to make our pitiful explanations of the good news attractive and convincing to others. What we need to know is that God really intends for us, for you and for me, to be the means of His saving grace to lost sinners whom we encounter in the ordinary course of our everyday lives. And Pentecost is the proof of all of that. Do you hear what he's saying? Every once in a while, God breaks the bounds of the ordinary, the natural, and he does something supernatural. He does a miracle. And that's what we have here at Pentecost. And the great hope for the church of our day is the great hope of the church of this day, which was that God the Holy Spirit is the one who does the winning of hearts and minds 
through the changing of hearts and minds. Because the kingdom has come and the curse is being undone, we have empowerment in the mission that God has given us. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, I will give you power to be my witnesses. Wait here until the Holy Spirit comes. And now in Acts chapter 2, that Spirit has come and the power is about to be unleashed because God's will is being done. What we see now with the Spirit coming, what's going to unfold in the rest of the book of Acts and throughout the epistles is we're going to see that this kingdom, when it comes, it is an inclusive kingdom. No longer are the boundaries limited to Jerusalem. Now the kingdom is seen to the four corners of the earth. We're going to see that this kingdom is a converting kingdom. People are changed and transformed when they come into the presence of the king and his people. We're going to see that this kingdom on earth is driven by purpose. The purpose of being witnesses to the gospel, to the resurrection of Jesus. And that it's not a select few who are witnesses, it's all who call on the name of Christ. All of them are to be empowered to bear witness to the truth of the resurrection. And then lastly, there's a unity that comes with the kingdom. I want to sit on this for a moment. There's supposed to be a unity about kingdom people. There's a oneness to kingdom people. They're always pointing to the king. They're always submitting to the king. They're always seeking to honor the king. And with this should come this unity, this oneness that somehow we just don't know. Because we're a divided people in a divided nation that knows nothing of the kind of unity that God's Word says we should embody. I saw a post on social media this week by one who's been known to be a bit cantankerous at times. Carl Truman, those of you who know him. Listen to what he had to say. I appreciated this. He said, I'm amazed at how much time Christians spend arguing with each other on Twitter and Facebook, on trivial matters and with unpleasant words. Then he says this, I do not believe Jesus wants me to use my remaining years exchanging insults with other Christians on public platforms. And I saw that and thought to myself of everything I've seen unfold in recent days and weeks and months of Christians just tearing into each other on social media. Now, believe me, there's room for disagreement. There's room for argument within the church. But see, played out in public, in public, is embarrassing. Because there's supposed to be a kingdom unity and a oneness to God's people that is remarkable to the earth. They're the ones who should and withdraw from each other because they don't know the union and with Christ and His church. But how quickly and easily we can make an enemy. We can fire shots. We can speak words 
that are in no way representative of the union and communion that is uniquely ours. So consider your use of social media as I consider mine. Does it in any way reflect a unique unity that's been given to you as a Christian, that you could show grace to someone rather than crushing them with your words, whether posted or not posted? God's will is being done, and He's doing it by His Spirit. He's changing hearts. He's changing minds. And for this glimpse, for this glimpse of a moment, things on earth, it's as if they are in heaven. And what we see is that the Spirit that the Apostle Paul referenced, the Spirit has made an internal deposit in people, guaranteeing what is to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, what we heard in our call to worship. Paul says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set His seal of ownership on us and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So Paul says the Holy Spirit's work in one way. It, it's like a down payment. It's a deposit. It secures that we belong to the Lord. And all those benefits of being in Christ, having this mysterious unity, this mysterious peace in a fallen world, those are guaranteed by the Spirit. Those are rightly yours. But we don't think on that. We don't meditate on that like we should. But the Spirit has come to bring unity, to bring peace, and to bear fruit in our lives. Bearing the first fruits of what we could call a renewed humanity. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. We see a glimpse of what would it look like for a people to be gathered and renewed, to be one in purpose, one in worship, one in mind. And it sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a group one could count, a people from every people and language. And throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, belongs on the throne and to the Lamb. And so in Acts chapter 2, we have this multitude of people from all over the place hearing in their own languages the proclamation of the Lamb. The resurrection of the dead. And it's a type of first fruit. Pentecost was one of three gathering pilgrimage feasts where people would come to Jerusalem. And it was the feast of first fruits. New life and giving thanks to God for the harvest. First, is that right? We had some of those strawberries this week. The first fruits, right? They're just coming out. Ten sweet. After a long, cold, hard, dark winter, the first fruits bear fruit. And everybody gets excited, right? Let's go to the strawberry patch. 
let's go get some fresh strawberries or let's go get fresh produce or whatever. The feast of the first fruits is that celebrating new life has sprung up in the midst of cold, hard, dark, wet winter, right? Jesus has used this occasion, the feast of Pentecost, just like the feast of the Passover lamb strategically used that to show that there must be a substitutionary death. And now he is seemingly playing off of the beauty and wonder of new life springing up out of old death. And he's using this occasion to celebrate new life in his people by the Spirit. That the old can be done away with. That new can come. And that he breaks the bounds of the ordinary and does supernatural things. That's some of the imagery that's playing in the backdrop in this event. Beautiful. It's a little bit of heaven on earth for a moment to the reality of the King, of the Gospel, and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now the people... So the Spirit comes. Their language speaking going on and people from all over are hearing the language spoken that they know these people don't know and the text says that they're amazed they hear the sound of the loud rushing wind and everybody comes out and they're like what's going on here what is this and they're amazed as they hear and see what they hear and see and the people respond one of three ways there are three responses here some respond with good questions. They're perplexed by what they see. They're bewildered. And their question is in verse 12. It's simply amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, well, what does this mean? What's going on here? What's this business? And I would say that's a good question. That's the question of a skeptic who is willing to say, well, something significant is at work here. What is it? I want to know what it is. Okay, that's one response. It's to respond to the real people, the real history, the real faith played out in the book of Acts and say, well, what does this mean? If this is true, what are the consequences of it? What's going on here? There's a second response here. And that is that some respond with bad conclusions. They're cynics. And you see that? It says some, however, made fun of them, they what they saw, and said, ah, they've had too much wine. They're drunk at 9 a.m. We'll find out next week. And they're just cynical. They're just like, oh, there's nothing going on here. This is just a bunch of hooey. This is a bunch of baloney. Insignificant here. These are just crazy Galileans. What was really happening they approached it with cynicism and with disbelief. And they mocked it. They made fun of it, literally. You know, the Apostle Paul would pick up on this same truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says then, at that time, he says, For the message of the cross, it's foolishness to the world, to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved... It's the power of God. And so you see power and foolishness. The same thing's going on here in Acts chapter 2. God has come with power in the Holy Spirit, 
and the watching, disbelieving world discards it as folly, foolishness. Now, I don't have to convince you that the same thing happens around us all the time. If you're a disciple of Christ Jesus, the world has said you're foolish. It's mocked you. It's made fun of you. Wrestling for a couple of couples right now, and have had great conversations. They're preparing for, and of course, a large part of premarital counseling and what they're preparing for is to enjoy what we would call biblical sexuality, right? Redeemed sexuality to the glory of God. And one of them was sharing with me how, in his one ear, he has me sharing my biblical counsel. He has a student on campus who's been trying to advise him in another direction about how to enjoy sexuality in a completely different context, okay? Completely different context. Because he would think what I'm saying is foolishness. Why would you wait until you're married to enjoy someone sexually, he would say. Well, that's what we believe. We're a people of the book. The world will always explain away whatever we hold to, whatever we believe, it's foolishness. It's silliness. Early Christians were regarded that way here, and they're regarded that way now. And that's the second kind of response to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to say it's foolishness, it's nothing. But then there is a third response here, and I'll end with this. After preaching in Acts chapter 2, which is what we'll hear next week, some responded with belief. Some believed everything they saw, everything that they heard, and they wanted to be baptized. They wanted to have union with that resurrected Jesus. They wanted to be numbered as one of his disciples, one of his followers, and they wanted to gather and be the church. So then and now, you do realize there are three responses to the gospel. Some some will just bring a good hard question. Well, what does this mean? Let me think about this more. That's a good response. To think about what you're hearing and what the call on your life would be. That's a good response. And then there's always the hardened, disbelieving cynicism. And then sometimes in God's mercy, there's a response of belief. And what we know from Acts chapter 2 is that that response of belief that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit changing hearts, changing minds, wooing sinners out of sin and to Himself to walk in this newness of life, these first fruits of change. And so as we close our sermon this morning, I just have to ask a few questions of each of us. The first is, what is your honest response to all of this? Are you a skeptic, willing to gather, willing to be around the church? But the truth is you've got some good hard questions that need to be answered. Questions like, well, what does all this mean? And how would it change my life if I were to follow Christ? Others of you may be more cynical. You may say, well, I've got a little room for a little bit of God in my life. But come on. People speaking in languages they've never studied. Dead bodies rising from their grave. Come on. I'm a scientific mind. I'm an educated person. 
Some of you may honestly have that response. But then still others of you, you can look back on your life and say, I don't know how, I don't know why, but I've believed. I've been drawn to it. I've been drawn to Christ. I've been drawn to the beauty of His life, death, and resurrection. And I've been drawn to follow. And to you, I would say, same Holy Spirit drawing men and women then, drawing men and women now. No different, no better than anyone else in the earth, but somehow mysteriously loved and drawn through circumstances, drawn through people by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life, whether young or old. As we look at the church according to Scripture, that is the way it's always worked. God breaking into our lives, melting hard hearts through the power of His Word, through the work of His Spirit, and drawing some, sometimes many, sometimes few, but always drawing exactly who He is pleased to call to Himself out of their sin and out of their misery and to His cross where the, death, where the penalty of their sins was paid. And so which are you? Skeptic, cynic, or believer? There really are only three responses to the wonders and to the miracles that we're hearing revealed in Scripture. And then my second application for us to apply before we conclude is this. That word about kingdom unity, that mysterious oneness that God's people are capable of having by the power of the Spirit. Is that in you? Do you have that kind of unity, that kind of love for the brethren, that love for the family of God? Or has it just been too easy in this culture and in this world to maybe tear at unity a little bit? Maybe pull against it. In a... Now listen, I'm not saying there's not room for disagreement, even strong disagreement within the church. But it ought to be harder to pull at our unity than it seems to be in the Christian church that we see in the world today. Even the American Christian church. So consider yourself. Where is your heart towards unity and having that mysterious kingdom unity? And what kind of response do you honestly and intellectually have towards these claims that we're reading about in the book of Acts. I'll close with this. It's a quote from John Stott, and it's going to lead us into prayer and into song. That at the end of the day, what we need, what you and I need, is this same Spirit that we are reading about in Acts. The same Spirit that says He works in us. The Spirit who woos us. The Spirit who changes us. John Stott says this, Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. No understanding without the Spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-like character apart from the fruit of the Spirit and no effective witness without the Spirit's power. 
As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. Amen. That's true. We need the Spirit. I need the Spirit. You need the Spirit. And we're going to close in just a moment with a song that really is a prayer for the Holy Spirit to be in us and to be through us. Let me read a few lyrics of that and then I'll pray. Listen to this and how it's a prayer. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Parentheses, I would add our unwilling souls because that's when we really need Him. If our souls are willing, He's there, right? So as we pray this, let's pray. If your heart's a bit unwilling, Lord, we need your Spirit. And then the song goes on. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and to make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. and Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. And then the sixth stanza. Let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road of sacrifice. That in unity, the face of Christ will be clear for all the world to see. Let's pray that that Holy Spirit would work that unity and that faith and that belief in every one of us. Lord, we ask for your Spirit because we cannot demand it. But you offer it so freely. And so this morning, having heard your word preached and read... And now singing this appeal for the Spirit to come. Lord, that's what I pray for myself and for these, your people. Would your Spirit come upon the young, upon the old, and everyone in between, that we might see what it is to be the church with a mysterious unity, a mysterious confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, And Lord, may we be found faithful as your church in big things and in small things. We ask this and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.